0: Good morning, church. How are we? Um, you know, you probably haven't heard anything about this, but there was an election this week. So uh, why don't we talk about it? Said Ryan as he pulled out his phone, not to check a text. <clears throat> In the months leading up to, we're not going to talk about the election today for the whole time, but I did feel like I'd kind of be burying my head in the sand, pulling an ostrich, as it were, if I didn't say something about it. So, let me say something about it. Uh, In the months leading up to the election, I had kind of kept in the back of my mind this idea that maybe I would put together a sermon and deliver it before the election. And then, uh, you know, my my fourth child, second daughter arrived and, you know, that kind of threw a wrench in everything. Uh, So then I thought, well, maybe I'll just put together an Instagram video, Uh, and so I started putting some notes together on my phone. Obviously, for those of you that follow me on Instagram, I did not put that video out, but I thought, uh, it's not a lot, but I thought what I would do on the front end today is just read to you exactly what I had typed in in my phone. So why don't we just do it? (coughs) Here we go. Once upon a time, Christians understood that the gospel was powerful enough to override the differences between Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector. They understood that it was powerful enough to override the differences between Jew and Gentile, that it was powerful enough to override the differences of people from every walk of life. And as the world saw Christians understanding the power of the gospel and allowing it to produce an otherworldly unity in the early church, that early church changed the world. And I believe the world is waiting for the church to understand the uniting power of the gospel again. I hear a lot of people say that we have a lot riding on this election, that the church has everything riding on this election, that Christianity itself is riding on this election, And, and with respect, I would like to say to that mindset and all those who subscribe to it, you could not be more wrong. My Bible tells me in Colossians chapter 3 that the moment I believed in Jesus, I died. And now my life is hidden with Christ in God. So my future does not ride on what happens with this election. It does not ride on what Kim Jong-un does or what Vladimir Putin does or what Donald Trump does or what Joe Biden does. It rides on what Jesus has already done for me. And if you've put your trust in him, the same is true for you. So whatever happens tomorrow, I wrote this planning to, you know, before the election, which took a year and a half to, the results come in, whatever. So whatever happens tomorrow, fellow Christian, our mission is the same. Go into the world and make disciples, not through force and coercion, but through love and sacrifice, knowing that the greatest days of our lives are ahead of us and nothing can change that. So welcome back to our series from the book of Acts. Uh, Today we're going to look at, um, well we're going to look again at at what Acts shows us. Week after week, one of the reasons that the book of Acts is such a helpful thing, I think right now, um, is is that Acts will show you unfailingly from so many different angles a picture of what real authentic Christianity looks like. There's really no Bible, uh, no book in the Bible that does that more effectively I think than Acts does. And so today we're going to look at the famous farewell speech that Paul delivered to the Ephesian church, specifically the leaders of the Ephesian church known as the elders. I'm in Acts chapter 27, uh, pardon me, 20, verses 17, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 37. It's a lot of text, but I'm going to read that on the front end and, and we'll see what God has for us. Here's what it says. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews, and that I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching it to you in public and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in town after town the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions. Are waiting for me. But I count my life of no value to myself. So that I may finish my course. and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. To testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Everyone I went about preaching the kingdom to. Therefore I testify to you this day. That I'm innocent of everyone's blood. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves. And for all the flock. That the Holy Spirit has appointed you too as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them therefore be on the alert remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each one of you with tears now I commit you to God and to the message of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands have provided for my needs and for those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There was a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship. This is God's word. So what we just read there was Paul's famous farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And a lot of times, I would say probably most of the time, um, when people teach that text... Uh, it's taught to go over the job description for elders, and certainly you can find that there. But uh, we're, we're going to look at it a little bit more broadly today because this passage is, is unique in the sense that what it represents is the only time in the entire book of Acts that you have a sustained address aimed only at Christians. Acts is full of all kinds of sermons and speeches and defenses. Uh, this is the only time in the entire book that you have a sustained address only to Christians. And so. What I want to look at in this passage is the legacy that Paul left for the Ephesian church and how it shows us what the church was always meant to be. And I think that is exactly as important for Christians to understand as it is for skeptics specifically at a time like this. And what we see in Paul's words here uh, is that the truth is supposed to be about at least three things, about truth, tears, and trust. And so with that, I'm going to get right to what's going to be our first idea this morning. It's that, number one, the church is meant to be a community of truth. I'm in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, which says, And that I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching it to you in public and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, uh, notice here that specifically in, in verse twenty, uh, there are three pairs, and what Paul tells us is first off what he did, he proclaimed and he taught, then how he did it without shrinking back and in a way that was profitable, and then thirdly, where he did it in public and from house to house and so what I want to do is look through these kind of like these these three different ideas of the way that paul conveyed the truth so so first and foremost paul says what he did and what he did is he proclaimed and he taught Uh, this is basically the essence of what the church is is here to do which is to convey the truth i just want to pause here and point out something that i think is kind of interesting but already simply by saying that that's a little bit of a controversial statement in the world that you and i find ourselves in because in a postmodern secular culture, the idea of any one group of people having the truth, meaning that there are people who do not have the truth, that that idea is seen with a lot of suspicion. That that can be seen as as narrow-minded, as offensive, maybe even as bigoted and dangerous. Right? In our culture, you hear a lot of things about, you know, uh, I have my truth, you have your truth. There's really no way to know what the truth is, so let's just kind of you know, not try to impose our views on on anyone or say that anybody's viewpoint is more valid than, than, you know, another person's viewpoint. And that might sound good on paper, but if I can, I'd just like to speak to that idea real real briefly here, uh, like this. If you want to know who I am, uh, you can't just believe anything that you want to about me. For instance, if someone were to come up to me after the service today and say, Ryan, uh, I really like to think of you as a six foot eleven Serbian center for the National Basketball Association. I would first off be flattered, uh, and certainly there 's nothing wrong with being six foot eleven or Serbian or a center for the nBA however i can 't keep you from believing any of that stuff it 's just not true and the point is you can 't really know who someone is until you know the truth about them. similarly, you can 't know who God is unless you know the truth about him. And actually, this even applies on an interpersonal level. I'll just make it personal. You can't know the truth about yourself. I should say you can't know who you are until you know the truth about yourself. Uh, and, And just so we're aware, you and I find ourselves in a culture right now that would tell you that the truth about you is that you are a physical body and nothing more, that you do not have a soul because there is no such thing as a soul. And that you are kind of foundationally merely the byproduct of evolutionary processes and environmental conditioning. And at the end of your life, 70, 80, 90 years, give or take, they will plant you six feet in the ground, you will rot, and that will be the end of your existence. That's what postmodern secular culture would say is the truth about you. The Bible would offer you a radically different truth about you. The Bible says that that you are infinitely more complex than a postmodern secular understanding of the self. That far more than just being a physical body, you are a soul that is temporarily inhabiting a physical body. That you are designed in the image of God, which has all kinds of interesting implications attached to it that are very relevant for discussions that are taking place in society right now about equal rights and human rights and all that kind of stuff. And that after this life, you will exist eternally in one place or another, a place called heaven or a place called hell. Now, the reason I walk through this is because those are two wildly different understandings of who you are, and they can't both be right. And so point being, if you want to know who you are, you have to know the truth about yourself. And if you want to know who God is, you have to know the truth about who he is. And of course, for for Christians, uh, we believe that the Bible's account of who we are and who God is, is the truth. So first and foremost, Paul says that that he dedicated his life to proclaiming and teaching, which means that first and foremost, the church is here to convey the truth. But then he tells us how he did this. And there's kind of two modifiers here. He says this, that he did this without shrinking back, and he did this in a way that was profitable. Now, when Paul says that he Preached and he taught without shrinking back. That means, it's a Greek phrase that means he did so, uh, without fear. He didn't cower away. And, and maybe that, that has you asking the question, um, you know, why would Paul be afraid to tell people the truth? Here's why. Because the Bible is going, biblical truth is going to offend everywhere, everybody, uh, at some point in their lives. Everybody at some point in their lives. There is not a, a culture, there's not a city, there's not a, there's not a town, and there is not a, an individual who will not find themselves challenged, upset, or offended at some point by what God has come to say uh, in his word. Now, the reason I walk through this is because, again, we live in a culture where it's, it's becoming increasingly common. You'll hear people say, I could never believe the Bible because I find parts of it offensive. You know I find what it has to say about marriage or I find what it has to say about um, you know personal responsibility or, or generosity or sexuality or whatever it is. I find parts of it to be offensive, and therefore I have to discard it um, and i just I just want to point something out here really the the fact that you and I find something about the Bible offensive is is a mark it 's not the only mark, but that actually is a mark of it actually being true here 's what I mean it's actually if you really think about it kind of. Ridiculous for me to believe that if an omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent God has legitimately communicated his will in his word, which is what Christians believe the Bible is, it's the communication of a transcendent God, you know, in 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 the form of a book. If I I believe that there's there's no way that an omniscient God would communicate and that his communication, what he has to say, would not eventually cut across the grain of some opinion or thought or feeling that I have, that betrays an incredibly lofty opinion of myself, does it not? That's a little bit of of a ridiculous thing for me to believe that God would communicate about how life is meant to be lived and I would just find myself naturally agreeing with all of it. Because that essentially elevates me to the plane of God, or worse yet, brings him down to the plane of me. And either one of those uh, is not a good thing to do. So the point is, if the Bible actually is um, the, the product of God himself, and not simply uh, the product of any individual culture, then the Bible then will challenge, upset, or offend every culture, at least somewhere. Now, here's a, here's a great modern-day example of this I just heard, and, and I think that this is pretty helpful. Um, If you take what the Bible says about um, uh, forgiveness, just as an example. If you take the Bible to um, Middle Eastern cultures, not only in Paul's day, but even in ours today, and you tell them what the Bible has to say about forgiveness, uh, people from those cultures will generally find it to be outrageous. Because the Bible says that you have to forgive people even if they don't repent. Uh, And Jesus famously commanded people to turn the other cheek. Uh, that in a shame and honor culture, the idea of not demanding satisfaction for the ways that people wrong you and instead turning the other cheek and and basically showing weakness is how that's perceived, that in in a shame and honor culture is seen as insane. But if you tell people from that same culture what the Bible has to say about sex and family, they'll hear that and and generally speaking, they'll say, well, yeah, that just makes sense. Of course, that's the way that, that, that life's meant to be lived. But interestingly enough, you take the Bible to our postmodern secular culture, and it's exactly the opposite. Meaning, if you tell people in our culture today, generally speaking, what the Bible has to say about forgiveness, uh, they like that. You start talking about love and mercy and acceptance, and not, you know, letting somebody's past condemn them in the future. And that, you know, to modern secular ears, that sounds great. But then you tell people from from this same culture what the Bible has to say about sex and family, and all of a sudden, that's offensive. And that's regressive. And that's borderline dangerous. That's seen as a threat in some places. Increasingly so, I would say. But, but here's the point. If the Bible has legitimately come from God, then it shouldn't surprise us when God's word inevitably challenges every culture somewhere along the line. And the, and the church's job, according to Paul's example here, is to hold up that truth even when we know that it's going to offend. But Paul says not only did he preach and, and, and teach Uh, without shrinking back he also says that he did this in a way that was profitable and that word profitable is key if if you read a little bit further down in in, uh, verse 32 Paul said now I commit to you the message of God's grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who who are sanctified the the Christian understanding of of truth is that truth is never something that we believe uh, for its own sake So, within the context of Christianity, truth is not actually an end in and of itself. It's always a means to an end. What truth is, biblically speaking, is, is, is it is food and it is fuel for our hearts, our souls, and our character. And and really, the fundamental reason for any kind of lack of health in our hearts, our souls, or even deficiencies in our character is fundamentally because we have not allowed the truth of God's word to become more than just an intellectual thing for us. We've not allowed it to dwell richly within us to the point that it changes us from the inside out. And so the point being, Paul certainly knew this when he wrote to Timothy and talked about, uh, you know, scripture being given by God and profitable for making us complete. Uh, what he's driving at here and what we need to understand is that God has not said anything in Scripture just for us to know as an end in and of itself. He has communicated what he has communicated that we might digest it and be transformed by it. Now, maybe you find yourself wondering, okay, well, how does that happen if that's so important? And that's where uh, the last little couplet of Paul's comes in for us. Because first off, he tells us what he did, which is that he proclaimed and he taught. Secondly, how he did it without shrinking back and in a way that was profitable. But thirdly, and lastly, he says where he did it, both publicly uh, and from house to house. So, so what that means is that Paul not only brought the truth to bear in a, in a public kind of uh, setting much like this one, but he also brought that same truth in homes, in groups, and in one-on-one, life-on-life relationships. Uh, and what that means for us is that if we want the kind of truth that legitimately creates health... Meaning, if you want want the kind of truth that more so than just helping you pass a test actually helps you pass life, you and I need more than just one big weekend gathering. What we need is, is relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ because that's where the truth becomes more than something merely intellectual for us. That's where it's driven from our head to our hearts and becomes fuel for the way that we live. And so we need to be deeply involved in community. And so all of that to say, the first thing that we can get from Paul's farewell address here is that the church should be a community of truth. But that, I'm afraid, is, is oftentimes where we tend to leave it. And what's really important to see here in this farewell address is that Paul never thought that that was enough for the church to just be a community of truth. Certainly it can't be less than that. But it must be a whole lot more than that. And that brings us to what's going to be our second idea during our time together. It's number two, that the church is meant to be a community of tears. Now, if, if you remember, I know it was a lot of verses to digest at once, but one of the clear themes all through Paul's farewell address is, is really volatile emotion. Uh, you, you, you have um, you know, grieving and tears and weeping all throughout. Not only was that a theme of Paul's farewell address to the Ephesians, it actually, according to Paul, was a major theme of his entire ministry during his three years with them. And you see this clear in verses 18 and 19. We read this to us. It says, When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with the trials that came to me, Through the plots of the Jews. So let's just talk about Paul's philosophy of ministry here for a moment. Uh, First thing Paul says is from the day that he got there, he says, I came to be with you. That phrase is more significant than it seems. To be with somebody means uh, to to have every area of your life exposed to them. And so what what Paul is saying here, this is is one of the the, uh, primary aspects of his legacy that he wanted to lead by example and instill in the Ephesian uh, congregation. What Paul is saying is that he did not come to the Ephesian believers, he didn't enter into their lives to control the areas of his life that they got to see so that he could misrepresent who he was. He came to just lay all the cards on the table and let them see what the gospel looks like in his life for for better or for worse. That's an amazing thing for me to, to really think about, because nobody does that. And the primary reason we don't do that is because of this beautiful thing called uh, social media. What social media has done, I often wonder what biblical authors would say had they had something like that you know, 2,000 years ago. But what social media has done, let me just tell you something that you already know, and actually experts are, are beginning to weigh in on now. Social media has given us more control than ever before conceived over what areas of our life people see uh, and therefore, it's made it easier than ever for us to misrepresent uh, who we are. So I, um, I thought I would tell a story to kind of elaborate on this. Many of you know, we, we just, uh, Katie and I just met our um, our fourth child. She's about a month old now. Baby B, what I affectionately refer to her as. And uh, Katie's friends got us a present uh, in honor of the delivery. They bought us a, a little session with... Uh, a husband and wife photographer team. So they came over, and they did the newlywed and the family photos. And uh, and so they they came over, and they took all kinds of photos, and and, uh, they sent them to us, and I put, I think I uploaded like five of them to Instagram. And in one of those photos came out really nice, really nice. You had me and Katie sitting on either side of the bed, and all four of our children uh, between us, and they were all, uh, you know, they just looked heavenly. They were smiling. And uh, there was a lot of filters overlaid on the photo. It was very light and bright. kind of looked a little bit like heaven, if I say so myself. And somebody commented on that post, and uh, they just spoke to how amazed they were, uh, how well-behaved, and how did you get all the kids. And I just have to stand up here and say that photo is the most egregious misrepresentation I can imagine of what life in my home is actually like with four children six years old and under. And to explain what I mean, I'd like to tell you another story. And if you listen carefully, you can actually hear my wife's anxiety attack right now. There it is. Not long after said photo shoot, Everett came home from school. Everett's my six year old son. He came home from school. I thought this was a really cool idea. I really like Everett's school. Uh, They thought this was such a cool idea for an assignment. They wanted the kids to think in terms of, of the election. And so they wanted the kids to put on their their own individual elections. So you had to, uh, on the sheet of paper, you had to come up with four candidates. And the candidates were different foods. And you had to call, you know, all of his friends and, and all that kind of stuff and see what people voted for. So we came up, ever came up with four candidates. The candidates were cupcakes, macaroni and cheese, chicken nuggets, and tacos, it became immediately clear upon several dozen uh, conversations that this was primarily a race between cupcakes and tacos. And me and Everett really wanted our guy, Cupcakes, to take it home. And we were emotionally invested. came down to the wire. Uh, it, it, it just it didn't come out that way. You know, we demanded a recount the whole nine. It's, it's a little bit hard to talk about even, even today, but tacos took it. Point being, we, we called all over creation. Everybody Everett wanted to call. So one of the people that Everett wanted to call was my cousin Mike. and uh, and he wanted to get Mike's vote and Mike's wife Kendall's vote and their son uh, that my son has called Elmo for about five years now. I have no idea why, but Owen is is Elmo to to my son Everett. So anyway, we called Mike. I got Mike on the phone, and I was going to explain to him the rules of the election and then hand it over to Everett and tell him what the candidates were. And while I was trying to do that, out of the corner of my eye, I saw what I was certain was um, an explosion of some sort of dairy product. And so I looked over, and sure enough, my 18-month-old son, Hayes, had turned a yogurt pouch into an improvised explosive device. And uh, he had yogurt up to both of his elbows. And I said, Mike, there's been a yogurt catastrophe. This is not the time. I have to call you back. He started laughing, and I hung up on him. And so we we took however much time we needed to mitigate that disaster. And then uh, then I I called him back. And I called called Mike back up, and he said, yogurt hotline, which is pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. And so then I went through with the motions again. I tried to explain the rules of the election. And lo and behold, uh, when I did uh, again, I was interrupted. This time by my daughter Scarlett crying. And uh, upon investigation, I realized that Hayes, after exploding the yogurt pouch, proceeded to headbutt Scarlett in the face, knocking out her very first tooth. Which was loose to begin with, at least. And initially, Scarlett was pretty jazzed about that when she saw the tooth in her hand. But then I think the gravity of the situation, you know, and and the blood and all that. And so I said, Mike, this is neither the time nor the place. Click. And so I picked up Scarlett and I had to, you know, explain the tooth fairy and how this was really going to work out in her favor and all that kind of stuff. Calmed her down. And finally, me and Everett just barricaded ourselves in my home office. And we called one more time, explained the rules of the election, and I, memory serves, Mike was a taco guy. Could have been the swing vote, I don't even know. But, um, but that was the end of the election. I say all that to say, that's what life in my house is actually like on a day-to-day basis. However, that never makes it to social media. What makes it to social media is the one second of a 24-hour period in which the stars aligned, and God's face shone upon us, and all four children happened to smile at the same time. Uh, and that, honestly, taken out of context, is a gross misrepresentation of what life is like for anybody, for that matter. And I saw this to say, Paul, in his, in his words to the Ephesians, Paul did not play that game. Paul opened up every area of his life and didn't bother trying to control the narrative, spin his reputation, or misrepresent himself to the Ephesians. And he says, not only did he did he come to be with them, but he says he did this in all humility. Now, th- this is an interesting interesting thing to consider, uh, the Greek word for humility was really common in the Greco-Roman world in Paul's day. However, it was never seen as a good thing. If you remember, you know the Roman Empire was built on strength and power and conquering your enemies and all that kind of stuff. So the idea of humility, not only was that not a virtue in the Greco-Roman world, it was actually a vice. It was synonymous with being low or being uh, you know, defeated. And so people would have read this. From Paul's culture, and said, "Wait a minute! Paul intentionally chose to be with these people in humility. Why would Paul want to do that?" And so let me let me speak to that question a little bit. Why is it a good thing? Um, here's why. We we talked about this last week. I'm not going to get too far into this, but whether you are whether you would consider yourself a religious person or an irreligious person, a secular person. This is a bit of a technical term, uh, but let me say this. We touched on it last week. Every human heart seeks to achieve for itself salvation as you define it. So religious people, uh, think Pharisees, have a tendency to go through life believing, uh, you know, if I live a good enough life, God's going to save me. Meaning, you know, bless me with a good life and then take me to paradise when I die. That's kind of the religious understanding of working for your own salvation. But in our culture, I've heard, I've heard uh, Christian sociologists say one of the hardest things about seeing the gospel advance in a secular society like ours is secular people think they don't have beliefs. They believe they don't have beliefs. But everybody does. Every human heart is defining salvation some way and working toward that. And I read a long quote from a book called A Meal with Jesus last week. I'm not going to read it again, but I think it did a good job of explaining that. Point being, even if you consider yourself a secular person, you're still defining salvation in some way. Now, for you, salvation might be having a great career or achieving some level of success. And the thought process is, if I can just get there, you know, then I'll be enough. Then I'll have worth. Then I'll be a person of you know significance. Or maybe you know salvation is defined as having the perfect relationship. You know, if I could, the thought process, if I could just get love from those people, be it my parents or a significant other, if I could just find somebody to treat me the way I deserve to be treated, you know, then I would be whole. Then I could be happy. Then my whole life, you know, could, could begin or, or whatever it is. But the point is, every human heart on autopilot is seeking to achieve for itself salvation as you define it, and what happens when you live that way, uh, is that you will never be able to be honest about who you are. You will never be able to be honest with other people about who you are or even with yourself about who you are. Because whenever you go through life with your heart uh, attempting to achieve its own salvation, you will live life on a spectrum. And on one end of this spectrum is ego inflation. At the other end of this spectrum is self-loathing. And so what will happen is when, when you're you know, going through you know times in life where you think you're doing pretty good, you're being a pretty moral person, uh, you know people look up to you and admire you or your career's going good or whatever it is, then, then you'll tend to become like a Pharisee. You'll get a big head and you'll start to look down on other people. However, if you start to fail, uh, people start to reject you, things don't go the way that you want them to in your career or any other area of life or, or whatever your version of salvation is, then you'll spiral into self-loathing. Christians, however are people that get off of that spectrum. And the thing that takes us off of the spectrum is this thing Paul references here called the gospel of grace. Because what the gospel does is it comes into your life and the first thing the gospel will tell you is that you are wicked and that you are a sinner and you could never earn God's salvation and whatever you thought the problems were in your life, you really have only seen the tip of the iceberg. But then if you believe the gospel and you turn to Jesus and you rest your life on what he has done for you rather than whatever you think you can do for him, then what the gospel does is it tells you that you now have the unending love of God and his love does not depend on your performance. It depends on Jesus' performance for you, meaning that at the very moment you put your trust in Jesus, God loves you exactly as much right then and there, right here and now as he will a billion years from now. And so what those two ideas, both of which are found inside the gospel, effectively pull you off the spectrum that the rest of the world naturally gravitates toward. Because on the one hand, the gospel makes you more aware of your flaws, which will keep you from ego inflation. On the other hand, it makes you more aware of God's love for you, which which will keep you from self-loathing. And what those two realities do as they take root in your life is they allow you to take off the mask and to live with the people God's placed in your life the same way that Paul lived toward the Ephesians. And what will happen is you'll no longer feel this need to hide who you really are or to misrepresent who you really are or to be anxious about the fact that you are coming off as anxious or distressed about the fact that you're coming off as distressed. And I, I think anybody who's lived that way, if any of that resonates with you, I know that you could say amen. Anybody who's ever lived that way knows how exhausting it is. I mean, if, if you attempt, if you and I attempt to move through life for any length of time misrepresenting who we are and trying to look like we're somebody that we're not, it's an exhausting way to live because it only gets harder and harder to keep up the front. And the other thing that happens when you live that way is even if by misrepresenting yourself and hiding who you really are, even if that gets you the respect and the admiration of people, that's not going to mean anything to you because you know they don't respect and admire who, they, who you are. They respect and admire who you're pretending to be, who you know you're not. And so ultimately, what Paul's talking about here, living with people with humility, that's that's what our hearts are designed for. That's where where real freedom is. And it leads to something really amazing. In in 1 Corinthians 2, I find this really interesting. Paul says almost the same thing to the Corinthians that he says here to the Ephesians. In 1 Corinthians 2, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, he said, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. But then in verse 5, notices he says, So that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And, and what he's saying here, Paul is saying, When I was with you, I was with you in weakness. I was, I was with you in, in trembling. I was with you in fear. But therefore, all of that caused you to see the power of God. And, and what he's driving at here, and I think you and I know this, if you have a person uh, who is not all put together, who is, you know, filled with fear, at least at times, and who is dealing with feelings of inadequacy, but someone who has legitimately been transformed by the gospel and is filled with love and humility, a person like that is going to do a far more effective job showing a crucified savior to those around them than somebody who's neat and perfect and polished and put together with every hair in place. Because the gospel does not say that we're saved by pulling ourselves together and following a, a put together savior. It says that we're saved by admitting how much of a mess we are and by by following a Savior who was devastated for us, who did not win but lost by going to the cross and literally being pulled apart for us. And so as that idea takes takes root in our lives, uh, what happens is it leads to the vulnerability and the transparency that Paul is talking about here. It it, it creates in the church a community not only of truth but, but of tears. And we need that. Every church needs that. And the reason that we need that is because any community of people any community of people that says we have the truth and no one else does which by the way, the church says the church unapologetically has said for 2,000 years just so that we're clear here we say, we believe, Christians believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and there's no other way to be made right with the Father except through him. That is an incredibly exclusive truth claim. We believe that we have that truth and people who believe differently don't have the truth. But but here's here's so important to understand any community of people that believes that they have the truth and no one else does can almost overnight become an oppressive community unless along with that truth comes tears meaning unless the gospel transforms us takes away our sense of superiority and leads to a willingness to, to show our weakness and a willingness to be transparent with those around us and what what that leads to when that culture takes place in the church is it creates the, the deep kind of life-giving relationships that you see between Paul and the Ephesian church leaders here, and it communicates incredibly powerfully to an outside world. Because when the, church, when, when the world looks at the church and they see both truth and tears, they'll look at the church and they'll see that what they'll, what they'll be forced to say is that on the one hand, they don't compromise the truth. They're not watering it down to try to people please. They're not changing the narrative for whoever comes in through the door. However... Those people are so patient and they are so kind with people who express doubts and differences. And so it's only when we become a community of the truth and also of tears that according to to Paul's example and and the rest of the Bible, then and only then do we become what a church was always really designed to be. So first off, the, the church is meant to be a community of truth. Secondly, it's meant to be a community of tears. But thirdly, and this is going to be our final idea today, the church should be a community of trust. And what I mean when I say this, I'm not referring to trust in each other, although there's certainly verses that talk about that. I'm certainly not talking about trust in ourselves. I mean specifically trust in God. Now, before I I walk through the Bible verses that I got this idea from, I just would ask you to picture, try to put yourself in the shoes of where the the Ephesian church leaders were. For three years, this murderer who turned into into a missionary named Paul the Apostle, for three years, he came to your city, and he brought with him this message, unlike anything you'd ever heard before, called the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that turned his life around on the dime, has been turning thousands of people's lives around on a dime. And for three years, he's been explaining how that message should work itself in and work itself out in every area of your life. And now, he's getting ready to say farewell, because he's got other plans He's got a life that God's called him to live, a path that God's called him to walk. And this is what he had to say in verses 22 through 24. He said, And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in town after town the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I count my life of no value to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Far and away, what is most moving to me about Paul's words there is the fact that he knew that whatever lay ahead of him in Jerusalem, it was not going to be easy. That, That was not a hunch that he had. That was something that the Spirit of God supernaturally revealed to him. And yet, here he is, you can kind of just picture him standing on the dock, through tears, saying goodbye to these Ephesians, saying goodbye to these life-giving relationships that he spent three years developing, walking away from all of that, the blessing of that, the comfort of that, in order to pursue a future full of hardship. And it, of course, raises the question, why on earth would Paul do something like that? And the only answer is because he trusted God that much. The only answer is he trusted God that a life of difficult obedience to God was far better than a life of easy disobedience. Now, I just want to pause here and open up to you all about something that I've kind of gone through in the last three weeks, or at least something that I've heard about in the last three weeks. It is amazing to me uh, how obviously God has impressed it on me, how many people in our church or directly connected to our church are, are really, I mean, really going through it right now. And I know that we're living on the wrong side of eternity, so people are always going through something. But at least in my time as a pastor, it has never felt as thick and as concentrated as it has been. I could tell you story after story of the last several weeks of people reaching out to me either via email, the phone, DM on Instagram, whatever it is, and talking about surgeries that their kids had or have, surgeries that their spouses have, surgeries that their parents have, surgeries that they have coming up. You know, people have, have have had medical tests where they're they're either waiting for news that could potentially significantly alter the rest of their life, or they've already gotten news that has altered the rest of their life. And just this weekend I was on the phone with somebody, just dealing with hopelessness, wondering what's the point of this? What's the point of continuing forward? And so I, I just want you to know, I would not say something like this lightly, and I don't say things like this often, but I really believe that what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, is God's word for us as a church right now. And of course, this is all God's word, but I, I believe these verses specifically are God's word for us as a body right now. Because what I am certain of is that it is God's will that every single one of us would walk through the future that God has laid out for us with all of the confidence and all of the poise, and all of the peace that we see in Paul the Apostle right here. That's God's will for every single one of us. Matter of fact, I don't know anything that honors God more than when his children walk through uncertainty and hardship with a peace that can only come from him. So I read these verses this week, and the question that it raised for me, maybe the question that it raises for you, is how did Paul get there? How do you get to the point where you can face your own Jerusalem with that kind of peace and that kind of confidence? What did Paul know that we need to know? And the answer comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians was actually a letter that Paul wrote on this final missionary journey. And in chapter 12, uh, he, he opens up about his life to the Corinthian congregation, uh, about what God had led him through and, and, and how that had blown out the bottom and led to a depth in his relationship with God that had never otherwise been possible. And if you've ever read that chapter before, you know that Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh that he'd been given. He refers to it as a, hear this, a messenger from Satan sent to torment him. That's pretty strong language for a guy like Paul who had been through a lot. Now, people have speculated widely about whatever that is. Some people have said that it's his poor eyesight. I don't think so. I don't think poor, I have poor eyesight. I don't think poor eyesight is a, a messenger from Satan to torment you. Some people have said that that's, you know, an, a, an ongoing struggle with sin that Paul never found finally vic, final victory over. Uh, that's possible, but the way I look at Paul, he, I think he walked a pretty you know, straight line. I don't think that was it. Some people have said maybe it was an ongoing, debilitating physical or mental illness. I think that's probably closest to the truth. But the reality is we're never going to know exactly what it is. What we do know is that it was incredibly painful for Paul to the point that he referred to it as a messenger of Satan that tormented him. Here's what he said. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times. I'm willing to bet there's somebody listening to this who has done their own pleading with the Lord about something. You and Paul have that in common. He said, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said, but he said to me, my Grace is sufficient for you. I'd I'd ask you to pay real careful attention to what God actually said there. God did not say, my grace will be sufficient for you tomorrow. He said, my grace is sufficient for you today. See, somewhere along the journey of him following Jesus, Paul got a hold of something that transformed his life. I think it would transform my life. I think it could transform your life if we could get a hold of it and really internalize it. But what Paul got a hold of is this idea uh, that wherever his life took him, as he followed Jesus, it didn't really matter. Because wherever that happened to be, God's grace was going to meet him there. And God's grace would prove itself to be enough. And, And so maybe in hearing that, you find yourself where Paul was, where you have your own personal Jerusalem ahead of you, meaning you have something ahead of you that is it's going to be difficult, or at least it has a chance of being difficult. And that's given rise to all kinds of anxiety, to all kinds of, of, of restlessness, uh, to all kinds of, of hopelessness and a slew of other things that aren't from God. If That's where you're coming from. I, 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 want, to speak, I want to speak directly to you. And we're, we're, we're beginning to end here. We're almost done. I just want to speak directly to you. The only reason that Paul could face the Jerusalem ahead of him was because he knew that Jesus faced Jerusalem first. Here's what I mean by that. What we have to remember when we read the book of Acts is that Acts is is really part two of a two-part book that the author Luke was writing. And when you zoom out far enough from this passage, what is crystal clear is the author Luke is deliberately trying to get us to compare Paul and Jesus. Because what you're seeing in this narrative is that Paul, despite knowing how bad it was going to be, or at least knowing that it would be bad in Jerusalem, determined to go to Jerusalem anyway. And that's exactly the same thing that the same author, Luke, said about Jesus in his gospel account, Luke chapter 9. The end of Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus determined, or or, or literally what the word means is it stiffened his face. Jesus stiffened his face to go to Jerusalem. Meaning his focus was so fixed on Jerusalem, that there was nothing that could sway his gaze from it. It is the sole thing that he came here to do. And of course, when Jesus got to Jerusalem, he was abandoned by everyone. And as he hung on that cross, he was forsaken even by his own father. And he bore the way to the sin of the world, and he did that for you and I. And three days later, pardon me, after they took his lifeless body down from the cross, they laid him in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, Paul knew Jesus walked out of that tomb because he didn't need it anymore. What that meant, Paul understood this as well as anybody when he saw the resurrected Savior of the world on the road to Damascus. What that meant is, Paul knew he had a Savior that had walked into and out of death for him, which meant that he knew that as death was not the end. For his Savior, neither would it be the end for him. That resurrection was simply a matter of time. The ending of his story had already been written. Now, in light of that, let me, let me read to you Paul's words again from verses 22 through 24. He said, and now I am on my way to Jerusalem. He could go to his Jerusalem because he knew Jesus went there before him. He said, I'm, I'm bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. Paul had no idea exactly what he would counter there. He knew that Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him there. He said, except that in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Paul knew chains and afflictions might be waiting for him, but it was the wrath of God that was waiting for his Savior. Wrath that he knew he'd never have to face. And because of that, Paul was able to say in verse 24, but I count my life of no value to myself. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't value his own life. It means that he finally learned to rest in the reality that his Savior valued his life. That Jesus valued Paul's life to the point that he was willing to lay his own life down to purchase Paul. And as that idea sank deeper and deeper into Paul's heart and soul, it allowed him to let go of his white knuckle grip on his own life, and it freed him to live for others the way his Savior had lived for him. That's why he could face his Jerusalem. And because Jesus did the same thing for every single one of us that he did for Paul, we can face whatever lays ahead of us, whatever our Jerusalem happens to be, with the same kind of confidence and the same kind of peace that we see in Paul here. Knowing that resurrection is the end of our story. It's already been written and it can't be changed. Let me just remind you of something. that Maybe we don't remind ourselves of enough in the family of God. Do you know, Christian, that the worst case scenario for your life is dying and going to heaven for eternity? It's the worst-case scenario. And by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, there's not a thing that will change that. And the hope that we have between right now and whenever that day is, God's grace will meet us in every moment, and God's grace will always prove to be enough. Now, let me call the worship team up, and I'm going to close with a quote. I found this two years ago. Um, This was really powerful and really helpful to me And I hope that it's just as powerful and helpful To somebody going through something today Uh, It was written by a man Putting together a commentary from the book of Daniel And he was writing about the faith of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego As they faced the fiery furnace Here's what he said As a child and a young person I sometimes used to wonder and worry About what it would be like to be in their position What would I do if I were faced With a similar choice between denying Christ and a painful death. I doubted whether I'd be so bold in service of the Lord as these young men were. I feared rather that I would cave under the pressure. As I've grown older, however, I have come to realize two things. First, God has not promised to give us the grace to face all of the desperate situations that we might imagine finding ourselves in. He's promised to sustain us only in the ones that he actually brings us into. He therefore, and I'll make this personal for you. He therefore does not promise that you will imagine how you could go through the fire for his sake. But he does promise that if he leads you through the fire, he will give you sufficient grace at that time. Like manna, grace is not something that can be stored up for later use. Each day receives its own supply. I just want to leave you with this. Following Jesus will never lead you to a place in life when you are without everything that you need. Because wherever you follow him, God's grace will meet you there, and it will be enough. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, would you make us the community described in this passage? Would you make us a community of the truth? Would you make us a community of tears? Would you make us a community of people that learn to trust you, that learn, like Paul, to count our own lives of no value because we don't have to. You took care of that for us. Father, there are people listening to this that have a Jerusalem ahead of them. Would you make it more real to them that Jesus went to that Jerusalem first so that they don't have to face it alone and so that it'll never have the final word by grace through faith in the name of Jesus.